0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Optimizing Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Dr. Amir Volkshore, and my guest today is none other than Dr. Garney Barkadarian, the Chief of Neurosurgery at Providence St. John's Health Center and an expert brain tumor surgeon uh, who's really taken the academic sides of keyhole surgery and minimally invasive neurosurgery to the next level. Today's topic is empathy and how empathy is important in neurosurgery and how we can use it to better our patient's outcome. Welcome, Dr. Barkadarian.
1: Thank you, Dr. Voxer, appreciate you having me on.
0: So I kind of wanted to have a modern version conversation of how the Hippocratic Oath and classical neurosurgery has changed in a way to make the neurosurgeon more of a partner in the treatment plan rather than a huge distant gap between the clinician and the patient. Can you comment on that a little bit and how empathy can work into that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've been lucky to be trained uh, during a period where uh, this has become an important aspect in medical education and neurosurgical education. Um, uh, I went to the University of Michigan Medical School in the early 2000s, and this was already part of the curriculum. Uh, with very special efforts made for the students very early on before their clerkships to learn to interact with patients and families and understand some tactics and methods to, number one, understand how the patient feels, but also to how to handle challenging situations, delivering bad news, uh, understanding, you know, what's the best way to manage these difficult challenges. And so uh, I was very lucky to um, to be a part of that. I think around the same time there was a movie that came out, Patch Adams, with Robin Williams. Yes, I do Russell. recall that. And uh, I read the book actually, and it was just fascinating. You know, obviously taking a little bit different approach than the quote unquote classic, um, traditional 1950s style approach to medicine, which was very sterile, both uh, emotionally and otherwise. Um, so I really resonated with that. And I think many do. You know, many people nowadays want to treat their patients the same way they would want to be treated if they were the patient. And to make Absolutely. sure that there is that error of um warmth and empathy that is transmitted across both ways.
0: Right. I think one of the fears of the, I guess, the old guard was that the that you would be so emotionally affected by the interaction. That you would not make the most objective judgment for your patient. How do you respond to that? Uh, because I, you know, I, for example, we did a lot of pediatric neurosurgery at the Ohio State University, and uh, and we were we were uh, Columbus Children's Hospital was incredibly busy, uh, and I felt like at times. I mean, I, I I even recall my chief resident saying, "Did you, you know, did you cry with that patient's family?" And I said, yeah, you know, their seven-year-old is undergoing uh, brain tumor surgery. And, you know, I, I was trying to uh, be caring and understanding of the situation. And, you know, there, it was an emotional occurrence where, where, where we're delivering the news. And every neurosurgeon, one of the first things in our training is having the talk. And we we get trained in that quite early and everyone does it differently. But I wanted to get your thoughts on whether kind of the old guard's mentality that you know, you should not be emotionally invested in any way because it could lose, you could lose objectivity has any validity.
1: Yeah, I would say um, there's absolute truth to that. Um, You know, I take care of lots of patients with brain tumors, and uh, unfortunately, some of them don't make it. Um, And uh, it's, it's always a very challenging time. My hat's off, my hat goes off to those people who only take care of the uh, malignant brain tumor patients, uh, our true, oncology true. colleagues, I, I don't know how they do it. It takes a certain certain type of person to be able to handle that. But um, I will say um, one thing I learned a- at medical school was, uh, and this was early on; it still re- resonates with me in Breaking Bad news, and, and I think this applies this lesson applies to surgeons in particular, because we're very much go-getters and action-oriented and uh, really want to see a result within a minute or two. So their point was that when you talk to a patient and you you lay the hammer down and you deliver that horrible bit of information that they now have to process, your natural uh, inclination is to continue to talk through it and to say, hey, know this is what's going to happen this is the next steps these are the plans these are how patients did. these are the statistics and try to do that because we're all very logical thinkers but the best thing to do is to just stop talking and wait and let them process it and even help them grieve a little bit if they're grieving Um, and that actually has worked tremendously well for for me and my patient population um I, find I think that's that- a
0: real that's a real golden nugget that you just delivered there. And it's the um it's not just about transferring a bunch of data as as fast as you can with the correct statistics. It's really is about transferring a, uh, a, an an emotional sensation that number one builds trust. Number two comes from the fact that the neurosurgeon actually has enough empathy to understand. That there is some need of time for digestion of that of that level of news,
1: yeah, and it's it's truly been very helpful. I think that especially if you deliver such news uh, in an acute setting in particular, patients aren't really listening to what you're saying anyway. They're often in a state of shock, and they're not able to process sure. what you're saying. So it, it really is an opportunity to just bond with the patient, let them know that you're there. They, they want to have somebody there that's solid, that's going to be their, their recourse for their problems. And while as surgeons, we're only part of the team, but they need to understand that that team is like this. So I think it's been um, that's been a good uh, rule that I've used. With regards to the other part of your question, Amir, about whether having an emotional bond with your patient will affect judgment. I have to push back on that old guard mentality. I, I I think you a good physician should have an emotional bond with their patient. You really need to be vested at some level to to really understand what your patient is going through and to take the best care of your patient. I think that some people who get very detached and see it as a technical type of work, you know, sometimes, those decisions that they make may not actually be in line with with what's best for the patient. Uh, I will admit that I've definitely been emotionally involved with a number of my patients. It's it's hard not to. And um, I don't think it's affected my judgment on uh, patient management. I'm very lucky that I have a strong team. Of really amazing professionals, and I will openly talk to my colleagues, yourself included, my neuro oncology colleagues, radiation oncology colleagues, the oncologist taking care of the patient, just to make sure that we're we're thinking clearly and coherently, and we're not making any rash decisions. But I think that that helps from a physician perspective. But I think it's important to have an emotional bond, and it's it's not uncommon for for us to really get involved in patients' lives, and um you know, even to be invited to their funerals after they pass on is is an important part of the process. And um, I would encourage any physician to to embrace that fact and not push
0: it away. I, I would second that, Garney. I think that speaks a lot about you as a human being and 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 as a physician. But brings me to my next question is, you know you're in the you're in the prime of your career. You know uh, I've been in practice longer than you, and there is a um, there is this thing is that that we're also humans. And is there a you know is there a critical number after which you become too affected or apathetic or too emotional or you know get off that perfect role? What you just mentioned having this like the correct amount and the healthy amount of emotional investment that you, you know, obviously makes you a caring human being, but is it, is it a situation where the quantity of the patients you treat, you know, let's say in your career, you'll end up doing, you know, five to 10,000 cases of brain tumors. Are you still going to say, oh, that, you know, that lady or that man with the same, you know, how do you stay uh, just healthy enough to, to, for it not to, uh, you know, consume you?
1: yeah i think I think that's an important question, and it's it it can be answered in a number of different ways. I think one aspect is focusing on your own personal well-being. I think that's an important aspect. The general concept of wellness is important, and it can affect not just your emotional issues in at work, but also just your overall effectiveness at work and um, and how you take care of your practice. So obviously that includes dealing with things like burnout and finding a good yes. work life balance which yes um, you know when i was in medical school work life balance was just beginning to creep in you know the 80 hour work week had just been implemented and right. so um so that that now is at the forefront of training and and a lot of the young trainees are coming out with a different understanding of that than we did when we were in training That said, I still think that, you know, our practices are such that we tend to work very hard and and, uh, we need to make sure we find time to, for lack of a better term, find a way to meditate and clear your mind and uh, be mindful. And everybody does it differently. I'm not saying you have to go and practice yoga or, or, you know, do some sort of uh, meditation uh, program. But for example, what I do is I go and exercise. And that's right. my time where I can disconnect. I go mountain biking in the mountains in Santa Monica Mountains in, in Los Angeles. And um, I just can disconnect from the world for even an hour and just kind of focus on what's around me. Think about my family. Think about, you know, the the people that I care about. and um, And then I get back to reality. And that one hour every so often is really helpful to center myself and ground myself and deal with some of the uh, the challenges you talk about. Uh, personally, I think medicine is one of these careers that you, you are always learning and you're always bettering yourself. And you're even when you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s in this career, you're always doing something to try to continue to improve how you deliver medicine. I think that's a sign of a, a good and conscientious physician. And I anticipate to be that way in, in, along my career That said, we're surgeons and we've all had our complications. We're patients that we've hurt and patients that we've uh, made worse as a result of something that's happened in the operating room or or around that time. And I think you have to remember that one patient. You have to keep that in the back of your mind because that's the way you're going to avoid hurting another patient. That's the way you're going to avoid repeating that complication. And um, so I, I do think having that emotional bond with that individual with that event is is very important in trying to stay a safe surgeon and a compassionate physician
0: I appreciate your comment on that as well i i really love the fact that you brought burnout into the conversation of empathy because yeah. <laughs> uh you know that's very very near and dear to my heart because i see it uh, we see it on uh, our colleagues all the time And I think there are a group of neurosurgeons who get numb and apathetic and uh, unhappy as a result of it over time. And I don't know if it has to do with um, the, I mean, I I think it does have to do with work-life balance but it really has to do with more like the internal mechanisms of our own brains and our own nervous systems and our own emotional integration of, of the very intense technical job that demands a lot at every level. So I appreciate you saying that, but more along those lines, let's go into more, um, now that we, you brought that one patient up, uh, let's go into some uh, patient examples and and some of the more challenging, I would say, psychological interactions that go on between neurosurgeons and their patients, just so we can kind of have some real world examples of of how to manage complicated situations.
1: I have a couple of examples Amir, and I think it's it's good to talk about them because it does put some shed some light into how this can can impact us. One patient clearly sticks out of my mind. young lady, she was uh, in in school or in training still when I first met her with a at the time a low grade uh, brain tumor, low-grade glioma. And um, we you know, we operated, took care of her. She did well surgery went fine. She continued her training. She became a professional in her career and uh, everything was fine. But as these low-grade tumors can do, in her case, unfortunately, for five or six or seven years later, despite um, the appropriate care that she received, um, the tumor started to become more malignant. And, you know, we're blessed to have a fantastic Neuro oncology team and a, a tumor board that helps us guide patient management. And um, you know, we figured out, okay, this is the next step. So we tell her this is the next step. And we do that. We operate again, she gets chemotherapy, further radiation, et cetera. And then, of course, as it does, another year or two passes. Again, the tumor comes back, and we said, okay, this is the next step. And we continue to go down that road until finally and and mind you this is a very independent person this is a this is a very um active and thoughtful individual this individual basically said that he wanted us to listen to what we were what what the patient was experiencing and what the patient wanted the patient needed to have a voice in their care and their decision medical decision making process and this, this idea has been around for a long time, but it's really started to gain a lot of traction recently. Nowadays, we, have, uh, we assess patient-reported outcomes alongside the objective data that we're looking at, You know, physical exam and laboratory and imaging. Um, so patient-reported outcomes is really important. But just listening to your patient and formulating a plan together, as opposed to saying, this is these are your options, or this is what we're recommending, um, is I think an important aspect. And by doing that, by really embracing that, we were able to reach this patient and um, who, who was initially recalcitrant to continue therapy, uh, to be allowed to to continue at some level in some capacity. And uh, I think it's it's a learning process on both ends. I've certainly learned how to handle uh, these situations a little bit better. Uh, but I think it's an important lesson to know how to listen to your patients. And, and of course, what type of patient uh, is appropriate to do that. Um, but uh, that was a very, a very good point. Learning a very important learning point for me.
0: Yeah. I, I have a real world example of that as well. There was a it was a gentleman that that inherently trusted me. And it was earlier in my career, he had a spindle cell carcinoma of the spine. That would simply appear at uh, sorry, sarcoma of the of the spine that would literally appear at 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 different parts of the nervous system every few years. And we would go take it out, and then it would kind of go quiet again. And uh, my personal mistake was to just stick to the technicalities of surgery at the end of his sort of road and where all the signs were saying that, you know, he's getting older and these surgeries are no longer going to have the same efficacy and that, 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 and we had a, you know, a, a good 10 to 15 year uh battle together and he inherently trusted me. And at the end, his choice was to proceed with this one more surgery, so to speak. And I feel like I should have you know, realize that that may just come from a place of fear in him that he just didn't want a tumor in his spinal cord and somehow work through that psychological fear with him to decrease it, to then make a better decision for him. And with the, you with the the palliative care team or his, his uh, hospice team and, and the family. And I, you know, that's one of those patients that really sticks in my mind as to, that the the surgical tool is not always the most important tool of caring for the patient, uh, and and even though I, I listened to him, I feel like um, in retrospect I should have, you know, been more, um, maybe just listening and 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 decreasing his fear somehow to make him make a better decision for himself. Because I don't think that final surgery helped him any. It didn't cost, uh, didn't you know, do anything terrible to him, but it did not bring him back to the, the level of function that he was uh, like the other ones did. Uh, but I wanted to go into these uh, complicated psychological situations, some of which we're not trained in handling. So do you have any real world example uh, uh, of patients uh, projecting their their emotional pain onto you, uh, kind of like using transference and, and these other challenging situations? And I, I definitely have one as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, I think that it's important to talk about it in this in this venue because it goes hand in hand. I mean, if you're going to be emotionally open and bonding with your patient and um, you know, basically making yourself a little bit vulnerable as a as a person, as a physician, um, there are going to be situations where you will have challenging interactions and relationships with patients. And we've all seen these types of patients who um, may be difficult to work with may uh, may project onto you how they feel uh, about themselves or how they feel about other issues, and may make you feel upset or irate right. And I think it's very easy to kind of take a defense mechanism and either start backpedalling quickly or or even getting upset and becoming, you know, pedantic and lecturing to your patient and and um that may be even be the the intent of what the patient is trying to do is to try to get a rise out of you but the what you need to recognize is that that may be part of the patient's coping mechanism and you, i think as a as a compassionate physician you have to recognize that even though you may be getting berated by a patient even though you haven't even done anything yet um that uh that really you need to let that process go through you need to not counter transfer your own emotions back to the patient and to help work through those issues with the patient hand in hand um sometimes it takes multiple conversations sometimes it's something that may take a few few uh, iterations before that trust that bond is developed with the patient but i think that's a that's a challenge that we face and um uh, in some cases, it's helpful to work with colleagues um, that are in your system, like our social workers, our spiritual leaders, our counselors. You know, those um, professionals can be extremely helpful in in navigating and and helping us in navigate and guide yeah. us through that process. But I certainly have had a number of patients where, um, initially, if this were my first few years out, I would have become very defensive, and now I just realize. This is part of the pathology, and we need to take care of the patients through
0: these types of issues. Words of wisdom, Garney. Thank you for that. I, uh, I want to reemphasize that, that we are, we are structuralists by training. We are neurosurgeons, but we're dealing with neurology and psychi- psych- psychology and psychiatry as much as neurosurgery. So uh, I think that's a very, very important point and, and a good place to, you know, I do have a real world example as well of a spine patient that uh, thought I was just being being cruel to them by not uh, offering surgery uh, and, and more narcotics and more of the same that that sometimes, you know, spine chronic pain patients get into. And uh, over the course of the years, uh, when she finally learned to trust me, as she was a professional skate, uh, snowboarder who had a terrible trauma and a, a Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And so she had a very hyperlaxed spine, hypermobile spine that had been injured. She did require some surgeries, but every time she was in pain, she wanted more surgery. And that was just not the way to go. And we, we know what happens there in, in the vast uh, great abyss of spine surgery gone wrong. And thankfully, somehow through this transformative process that she underwent herself by getting a uh, sort of a, almost like a meditative guide, a life coach or something of that sort, she, she learned to trust me. And now we're, you know, we have an incredible doctor-patient bond and she likes to talk about how she used to curse me out in my own office because I wasn't offering her surgery or narcotics. So it, it was, um it was a very, very important teaching lesson. I guess that's what we call a practice of neurosurgery because it helped me evolve a lot as a person, as as a surgeon. So yeah, those are really wise words. Any any other challenging situations you want to mention uh, before we wrap up here? No, I would just say, um, you know, just
1: putting things all together. I think uh, the way I've approached this Career of ours is is really to make sure that we always put the needs of the patient ahead of everybody, including our own personal issues, our own emotions, our own biases. I mean, I think uh, people are recognizing uh, those issues, and we're being taught implicit bias and various aspects of that in our in our day-to-day training. But it does apply to our patient care, and um, you know, I I I would double down on emphasizing that emotional bond you have with your patient and just figuring out the proper way that you yourself can cope with those emotions so that you're not carrying them home with you, but you're able to still compassionately take care of your patients.
0: Words of wisdom again, Garney. Thank you so much for your time. I did want to start a whole new conversation about our brain's heuristics as as a way of of the computer that we are dealing with, with the data that we know, as we know as neurosurgeons, there's a great, great, grand saying that says you're only as good as your last bad case, emotionally. Yeah. And uh, yeah. we we also have this concept of neurosurgical pits, but maybe those are great topics for uh, for an, another another podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's it's very enjoyable to to do this, and hopefully we can be of help to our colleagues uh, optimizing their practice. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Optimizing Neurosurgery Practice Podcast. Uh, Dr. Garney Barkadarian, thanks again.
1: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.